Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we shake but never stir your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this Blast from the Past, Sex on the Beach edition from 2009, Sarah Wood and Jackie Hayes weigh up the environmental cost of the contraceptive pill versus the condom. And Mark West talks to celebrity chef Manuel Terron about the science of cocktails. Which contraceptive is better for the environment, condoms or the pill? In 2009, Sarah Wood and Jackie Hayes investigated. The lights are dim, the music's playing, the bottle of wine's cracked open. And just before you go in for the kiss, you're thinking, it's business time. It's business time. And what's more environmental, the pill or the condom? Sarah, have you asked yourself this before? Um, well, it was only quite a while ago when I had the task of looking into this exact question for G Magazine. So the most common forms of contraception are the pill and the condom. Just a couple of facts about usage. Well, first of all, how did you actually go out and uh, decide which was better for the environment? Like, what do you look at? Do you look at just the use or do you look at manufacture? Yeah, the first thing you look at is pretty much the production. So the first section of the life cycle analysis when you're looking at the environmental impacts of a product is the production. Um, so this is when they actually make a condom or they make the pill? Yeah, that's right. And condoms are actually made, well, most condoms are made out of latex, which is otherwise known as rubber. Uh, It's derived from rubber trees, which means that it's actually a renewable resource. What most people... So they don't... Do they kill a tree to get... Yeah. uh, To make the latex? They don't actually kill the trees. What they're doing is they're drawing the sap out of the um, trunk of the tree. So they're not actually cutting down trees, which means that rubber plantations are actually good for the environment in terms of drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. However... There's a lot of land clearing that goes on, especially in China and the Amazon, uh, to make way for these plantations. Ah. And that land clearing um, and that monoculture. So monoculture is when there's like a whole bunch of trees, but they're all identical? Yeah, so there's like a massive diversity of like, say, a rainforest, and then they've knocked all that down to plant one species. And, you know, obviously that knocks out a lot of the populations. and ants and stuff. Yeah, or or small mammals and things like that. So... There's other alternatives to latex condoms, which are um, polyurethane condoms, which are made using fossil fuel-derived oils, but they're not as common. And usually the, the main impacts of we're looking at from the latex condoms. The pill, on the other hand, uh, is a pharmaceutical product. So the estrogens in the pill are synthesised from a natural form of estrogen, a natural form, as in like they where do they where do they get it from? Well, I asked. Um, well, getting getting this Don't information get out of them? pharmaceutical companies, as you know, is is pretty hard. Yeah, right. Um, they've probably got chickens somewhere producing it. Yeah, as far as I know, they they've replicated this natural form of estrogen, um, and they put 
the pill that you see is actually full of a whole heap of fillers, lactose um, and other mm-hmm. fillers that they put in there. They actually put a lot of sugar in it to make it taste nice. Oh. Um, there's a lot of additives that you don't actually think because the... That's and- just like when I have panadine and I suck the little outer coating off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, no. Oh, whatever. They're all good. But what you may not realise, and I don't know, I... Actually, a couple of years ago, I went to the TGA down in Canberra and saw how they tested condoms. What's the TGA? It's the Therapeutic Goods Association. That's where they test condoms. And they do all these crazy things like stretch them and blow them up with water and see, you know, where their limits are, basically. Um, And that process uses a lot of water as well. Yeah, well, (laughs) they they can... What can they hold? They can hold like 10 litres or something, right? Yeah. I don't know what guy... Um, no, let's not even go there. So the manufacturing process, which is greener? Well, I think it looks like the pills manufacturing process is a lot... Um, because of the monocultures in China. Yeah, there's there's a lot of impacts, in, including toxic effluents going into waterways from the from the condom manufacturing plants. Oh, there's a yeah. lot of um, the vulcanisation process, which is a process of drawing rubber from water, from solution, actually creates a lot of toxic effluents. Effluence and because it's done in a lot of Asian and third world countries, the regulation of this effluent isn't very good. So that can flow into environments right. and actually cause damage. Whereas the pills usually manufactured in Europe um, or in more developed countries where the you know the effluents are managed properly and they're treated. Okay. Mm. So what else do you look at in your life cycle analysis? So the next thing I looked at was the use in the packaging. Currently there's 10 billion condoms being used each year, which is a lot. 10 billion? 10 billion. Well, hang on, wait. How many people are there in the world? There's only like 6 billion people. Yeah, well, so that's just if you're only condom. having sex once a year, that's... But I then guess. you've got to take into account the children, the geriatrics, yeah. the Christians. Well, the- a Durex... Con- condom survey actually showed that on average globally people have sex 103 times per year every three days that's oh no not quite but almost yeah it's a lot of sex being had which is which is a good thing there's 10 billion condoms being used each year their role is as a contraceptive but also to prevent um sexually transmitted infections yes which uh in africa and countries where aids is a massive problem um that becomes especially important and that's where a lot of uh, condom use is actually happening. Comparatively, there's 100 million women using um, 1.2 billion packs of the pill. They do come in three-month lots, which cuts down on um, the packaging, package, yeah, which packaging. women, if you're, you're using the pill, go try out, and get... Go out and buy in bulk. Yep, buy in bulk. It's the best way to do it. People have, are having sex 103 times a year, and that would require about nine boxes of condoms, which each contain about 12 Assuming, 12 of course, that no one actually reuses their condoms, which you shouldn't because no. they're not meant to work as well. No. So p- assuming everyone uses their condom responsibly. Yeah, nine boxes of condoms per year, whereas the pill uses 12 small blister packages of pills per year. And are those blister packages recyclable? They're not. They're made of PVC, which is polyvinyl chloride. Right. They're not recyclable. They have an aluminium backing. So you do have to dispose of them in the waste. However, and the same with the condoms, always 
throw them out. Don't. <laughs> Don't try and recycle Don't try those, and recycle them. <laughs> um, no, one, no one wants to be picking them out of the rubbish down at the collection centre. Anyway, so the condoms have about 232 grams of non-recyclable packaging and a one-month pill pack has about 20 grams of non-recyclable packaging. So when you look so at that... 20 versus what was the other one? 232. So you've okay. got like almost 10 times the amount of non-recyclable packaging for condoms. So when you think about it that way, the pill definitely wins out in terms of packaging. Okay, so what else do you look at then? Okay, we've looked at at production, we've looked at use. Yep, the next thing would be biodegradability because, you know, you're throwing these things out. What happens to those condoms once you've used them? Do they stick around for 10,000 years? Well, the evidence is that they do stick around for a really long time and it's not known exactly how well they break down, but the problem is they need to be exposed to air. So if they're in landfill, depending on whether they're buried into the landfill or whether they're exposed to air will, you know, affect how long it takes for them to break yeah. down. And right now you can imagine there's not very much oxygen cycling through our landfill. Yeah. But being latex, it does mean that they are essentially a natural um, so substance could, so and they will could break you down. Compost your yeah, condoms? Because you've been in compost your condoms. Well, I suppose you could, but I guess compost would be a bit of an anaerobic environment eventually. And also, would it attract vermin? Yeah. The I'm best thing sure. is not to compost them because okay. All right, chances well. are if you're putting your compost on your garden and you've got nosy uh, magpies going through <laughs> as we do at home, they could choke yeah. and that's not a good thing. But when you look at the or pill... worse, they could pick up your condom and then take it to your neighbour's house. Yeah, that'd mm. be really embarrassing. But when you look at the pill, the key ingredient is an oestrogen called ethanol estradiol. And what does it do? What happens is when it goes through the body, it it actually comes out when you go to the toilet. So there's small amounts left of it in your urine when you go to the bathroom. The problem with it being in the past, and you probably heard this in some science news back in the past, is that any of this sewage treatment water that gets into waterways, especially local river systems, can actually cause mutations in fish. Mm-hmm. A while ago, there was reports of male fish growing female hormones and having crazy mutations because Ew. of the pill basically getting into and, the water. And of course, if it's getting into the fish, it's getting into everything that eat those fish and then everything that eats them and all the way up the food chain. So we're talking like it's across the board in species around the world. Yeah, that's right. And so this upsets populations in terms of breeding females and males, which means that certain species could die out depending on you know, this effect. But what I did was I had a chat to uh, Stuart Kahn from the Centre of Water and Waste Technology at the University of New South Wales. And he gave me a really good insight into the research that's been done in Australia. And if you think about it, we're actually, a lot of Australia's population is on a coastline. And when you look at sewage treatment plants across Australia, most of them are on the coastline. So what's happening is the water's treated usually at three levels. uh, And then that water is float out into the ocean. So by that stage, the water's diluted and it's not going into a local river system. So so you reckon there's enough salt water that it really doesn't make that much bigger no. difference? No. The problem mm. is where you've got inland areas, and this is still the case for areas like Penrith or inland Sydney. Or, or even further, like or, out in yep, Alice. Yep, or any rural communities where they've got sewage treatment. That 
sewage treatment water is going into local waterways. And there looks like at the moment there is some effects on some introduced species of mosquito fish. I mean, of course, we don't care about introduced species being affected, but the point is there hasn't been enough studies done on on, on native, all the native fish. species, yeah, yeah, to tell whether it's actually having a. So, are you telling me, Woody, that if I'm if I live near a coast, I should take the pill, but if I live inland, I should use a condom? Well, that's that's sort of the verdict that I came up with, actually. Wow, getting so to that, if you're a male living in Alice Springs, don't drink the water <laughs> unless you want some fun mutations. Well, my kind of you know synopsis of the whole thing and my verdict was that if you're having sex in the city and you're on a coastline. Sex in the city. Sex in the city. Yeah. Then it's better to use the pill because you're going to be contributing to less landfill waste and, you know, the estrogens are just going to be washed out in the ocean and they'll be diluted so there won't be any effect to fish. Yeah. Whereas if you are inland... Who and knows you ha- what you're doing to the species? <laughs> you should use a condom because the, the pill may wash into the waterways and be mutating fish. So you don't want to be mutating fish. The other thing is to think about is... Of course, if you are not in a long-term relationship and you haven't been tested for STDs... Be safe. Be safe and always use a condom. And, of course, um, using contraception is the more environmentally friendly option. Of course. As opposed to yeah, that's having right. no contraception whatsoever and increasing the population of the planet. Yeah. There you go. Go out and have sex responsibly. Thank you, Sarah and Jackie. Here's a peek at the future from 1962. Looking into the future... Why, here at the Bell Labs, it's part of our duty to look as far ahead as possible. The telephone of the future will be an even more prominent and versatile part of our lives than it is today. Operating on no more power than an ordinary light bulb, the optical maser will be able to carry hundreds of thousands of telephone calls and television programs all at one time on a single beam of light. A touch of a button and picture phones bring the conferees together in seconds. Company executives located around the world are deep in discussions over business details. Even printed material is exchanged among the group by telephonic machines. As if they were all in the same room. Junior is getting help with his homework. The program comes from an education center and is carried on a special TV circuit via telephone waveguide. A hollow tube that can carry hundreds of television programs and telephone calls at one time. Dinner. It's almost that time. And Princess is still playing outside with her friends on their helicycles. But her wristwatch radio telephone makes it easy to call even young teenagers home for dinner. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And finally, is there a science to inventing new cocktails or is it all art? In 2009, Mark West investigated the issue with celebrity chef Manuel Terron. Do you think cocktail making is like a science experiment or do you just throw it all in there and see what happens? What do you do? Yes, it is like a science experiment, but with any science, you have a hypothesis. You have a way of, of structuring something together in order to formulate what the outcome might or might not be. You know, and like we did tonight with regards to certain experiments, yeah, you can have a, a basic 
makeup. Like, you know, I showed you the, the, the window that had the, you know, strong, sweet, sour, and bitter. And you can use any of those combinations, but it's interesting to see what happens when you, when you use a different sour or you use a different bitter, you know. And we, we talked about different, different sours as well, you know, passion fruit. And so it's, it's, yeah, it is like science where you can experiment, but you have to know the basics. You have to work within certain parameters, you know. There are always exceptions to the rule. And with anything, you can never get anything solid. There's always exceptions to the rule. And it's not all in the taste. There's a lot in the smell. We did heaps of stuff tonight with mint, which, which completely changed the way the cocktail worked. How does smell work? Um, smell is probably the most important. Um, you know that, that old experiment where you kind of, you know, you pinch your nose or you have somebody hold your nose and you try different things and you try and guess what you're actually eating. It's a very, very difficult to pull out certain flavours because your, your main olfactory uh, tool has been shut off. Um, and it really is all about the nose. The mouth can only taste four essential things. Sweetness, sourness, bitterness, and salty. That's it. Um, and even that starts to kind of shut down once you kind of close the, the nasal passage off. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we are animals that... that are all about the, 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 the nose. We follow our nose, if, if you like. You know, a dish that smells fantastic you know, becomes more appealing. Um, you know, you'll be walking down the street, you'll smell a, a girl's perfume as she walks by, and it'll take you back to somebody that you knew 10 years ago. Um, you know, so it's, it's very, very intense and very kind of... It, it triggers certain things in our brain. And one of the other things we made tonight with molecular cocktails, I've never heard of that, but that is a particularly science-y name. Is there, is there anything particularly molecular about it? Um, look, interestingly enough, the cocktail that we made from, was from uh, 1888. So with regards to, to molecular and it being such a buzzword now, you know, something like the, the foam that was created by the fact that somebody that didn't know how it actually worked, like now we can say, well, yes, you know, the, the dairy product within this drink um, uh, forms around the bubbles of, of seltzer um, and stays that way, therefore creating essentially a, a, a sturdy foam, you know, that becomes part of the cocktail. We showed how you can recreate this using, you know, a, a, a whipped cream canister. But, you know, then there's these natural elements like, like pineapple juice that creates foam as well. I mean, apart from that, yeah, you can add gelatin to something and solidify it, but what that necessarily does in the world of molecular, I'm not really sure. Um, I think more molecular is like, you know, uh, trying these different sugars and how they affected the, the drink. I think that's where we kind of can start to break down, you know, the realms of a cocktail um, more seriously. Again, like, like sour, you know, make a margarita one day, um, use lemon, you know, make it the next day, use lime, or... You know, do them all together. Use passion fruit, orange, grapefruit, pineapple juice, and you will see how that cocktail drastically changes. You know, obviously with lemon and lime, you're talking about very, very small differences, but differences nonetheless. So that when I talk about the molecular aspect of cocktails, that's what I talk about. So like breaking it down to, to its building blocks, and those building blocks that we talked about: strong, sweet, sour, and bitter. And some of my friends swear blind that rum makes them angry or, or red wine will make them depressed or tequila will, you know, get them going. Do you think there's anything to this? Uh, tequila, I have found it has this natural high. It creates a natural high. Um, one of the interesting things about the raw product is that agave grows for, for 10 plus years under the Mexican sun. It has no irrigation. Um, it's not planted. 
It's, an, it's a completely natural product. And I think this is one of the reasons. How we can specifically find that, I don't know. Um, but, you know, they, they check for the sugars in the agave plants and then they, they harvest them and that's how that's made. Uh, gin, I don't know about wine, but I've heard gin can be a depressant. Um, I agree that all alcohol is, is pretty depressant. But, um, but juniper berries ha tend to have that quality about them where, where they can be depressant. They can also, I've heard, they can get you horny. Uh, you know, it's, just, it's, it's, all, it's all relative. Um, but, yeah, as to, as to rum, it is a bit of a fighting fuel. Um, and interestingly enough, I think it is the basis of what it's made from, which we're talking about molasses, where rum made from pure sugar cane has different reactions than rum made from molasses. I don't know why. You know, molasses obviously being a byproduct of the sugar refining industry could be, could be saying a lot. But, um, but, you know, a lot of rum here is, also has sugar added to it. So you're almost looking about a liqueur. And when guys have too much sugar, they get too hyped up. So they, they tend to get, you know, a bit more yeah. masculine than they should. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Um, you know, red wine... Has does things to me triggers uh, asthma in me. So I mean, there's you know there's certain um, aspects that are now put into a lot of spirits that can have a detrimental effect, which is kind of unfortunate. But you know, if you try a 100% blue agave tequila or a quality bourbon or a quality rye, um, you should be doing pretty well. I mean, it's it is all about the quality of the spirit. And the absence we had with the last cocktail. I, I've certainly never had enough to see green elephants or whatever Wormwood's supposed to do. You would never. You would never. Interestingly enough, I've, I've, uh, we launched um, some of our brands in, in the US just recently, and I've been kind of pulled into this ongoing battle of the absinthe. And, um, you know, and what Wormwood actually does, and Thujon being the, the main uh, chemical compound, Look, at the end of the day, you will probably die of alcohol poisoning before you see anything. Um, it's not a hallucinogen. Um, it was believed to have the same properties as THC, as marijuana. That really didn't come, come to, to, to fruition either once they did more tests. Um, what it does have, and this is the interesting dynamic of, of drinking absinthe, is that Thujon actually allows your, your brain to spark off. You know, the neurons tend to spark off um, a lot quicker, a lot more readily, uh, you know, they're not inhibited at all. So, which means that you, the more absinthe you drink, the more lucid you actually become. Right. Um, and excitable and could be agitated, depends on, on how much you drink. But then there's also the dichotomy of it having loads of alcohol. Yep. So while your brain's going, this, this, this is going absolutely nuts, your body's kind of getting that downer. So it's, and most drugs work in that kind of tandem of doing one extreme and the other, and then crashing them together. So that's really what absinthe is all about. I have actually drunk enough to... To, to get that next one. Get... I mean, if I can call it a high. Um, you get an absinthe high or a thujone high, and you do, you go, wow, I should be absolutely legless right about now. And you are. But you are... Everything is just very clear. Um, and I can understand how the Bohemian artist set of, of the Belle Epoque in, in France would use it to, to, you know, to their detriment. Because at the end of the day, they were drinking very, very high alcohol uh, product, and sometimes, you know, of dubious quality. Um, but you know, it, it 
almost, I would say it almost allowed them to, to open up that door of their imagination uh, a little bit more. Not necessarily see things, but you know, with artists and poets, they're always more descriptive than they probably should be. And I think that's where all of this came about, where it was like, oh, it's psychotropic, oh, it's hallucinogenic. It's not. It's, it's actually, it just actually makes you more lucid. I have a huge amount of respect for the martini. And it's one of those go-to drinks that where if I've had a real crap day, just shit has just been tough. I'll, I'll get home or I'll go into a bar and I'll order a martini. And honestly, by the time I finish, or by the time I hit the bottom of that glass, the worries of my day are gone. And I recommend it to anybody. If you really had a crap day, make yourself a martini. And it's great when you make it because it's very therapeutic in the, in the action of making it at home. Because you're going to the trouble, you're skewering the, the olives, you know, or you're, you're taking that nice peel off the lemon to give it a twist, you know, but you're, you're diluting it, you're getting it to your point, to the point that you like, that you enjoy. It's your martini. And there's, there's that beautiful, simple pleasure of it. You know, it's just in this, in this conical glass, you know, you can have it with one or two olives, five, you know, lemon rinds. It doesn't matter. Like, you make it to your taste. But once you get to the bottom, you're great. You're sorted. Everything is, seems okay. And that's, what, that's the one cocktail I can that's say that about. It's either that or a shot of tequila. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Cheers. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That was Mark West in 2009 talking with celebrity chef Manuel Terron about the science of cocktails. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos themed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Contributing to the show from the archives were Sarah Wood and Jackie Hayes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in North East Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.